Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep The Bed of Shadows by Fred R. Farrow Jr. First published in Weird Tales in May 1929. I picked this out of Weird Tales May 1929 because it was nice and short. I'd never heard of Fred R. Farrow and I love this little short story. And uh, I think when I suggested uh, you read it, uh, you didn't think that much of it the first time, but then I told you about how enthusiastic I was about it, and you 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 changed your mind. I did. I think that the best conversations uh, reveal enthusiasm among conversationalists, and so I am eager to hear what you would like to say about this piece. Um, we should read it, right? Oh, absolutely. It's it's only three pages, and um, I think uh, it'll allow us to discuss it all the deeper. And it's, as far as I can tell, it's half of the life work of Fred R. Farrow. Yeah, Jr. it is. He wrote, right? wrote two stories, and this is I read the other one. It's not as good as this one, not by a long slide. Okay, well, I'll give it a try, my friend. Thank you. It's, it's in the form of a diary, mm-hmm. The Bed of Shadows. March 6. At last, after two months of sleeping on a cot, I am back in my own room again. It has been completely redecorated and refurbished. First of all, it now boasts a real fireplace, not one of those make-believe electric affairs, but one with andirons and a screen. How cozy it will be to read by its flickering light on long winter nights. The walls are paneled in driftwood oak up to within two feet of the ceiling, which is papered in some odd design. The furniture selected by my sister Myra is of the early colonial period. The bed especially is a prize, a huge grim four poster with dingy dark maroon drapes on the sides and open at the top. As I have a passion for reading in bed, Myra has provided a wrought iron bridge lamp, which can be swung so as to illuminate my book. The room is so delightfully gloomy that I can hardly wait until evening to lie there in bed and begin reading Ghost House, which I picked up at the store today. March 7. As I intended, I retired about 11 last night to read. I had my bridge lamp on and the curtains on that side of the bed were drawn back. The interior looked so dark, except where the light shone through the parted curtains, that it seemed almost like entering a tomb. There was a log fire which cast queer, quavering shadows on the ceiling. The ceiling. I had not noticed before what sort of paper Myra had picked out for the ceiling. It has a most intriguing design of scroll work on a dark background. I lay in my gloomy bed and idly traced out the intricate curves in the wavering firelight. My book is only fair. I read about two chapters and then put it down. My eyes wandered to the ceiling. I shall read some more tonight. There is a faint musty smell in the air. Perhaps the curtains need airing. I shall speak to Myra about it tomorrow. March 8th. 
it is wonderful to have a fireplace in one's room. It seems so completely comfortable when the fire is just barely flickering to watch the little flames leaping up from the charred logs. I read some more of Ghost House. The book gets better as I progress. From time to time, I cast my gaze up at the ceiling. I don't know why, but somehow I enjoy looking at the odd design of scrolls and spirals, a queer pastime, but fascinating. If Myra knew, she would wonder at it. I wonder myself. March 9th. As soon as I retired last night, my gaze rested on the ceiling. For the first time, I seemed to feel attracted in some vague, uncomfortable way by the queer spirals on the paper. What was it that I read long, long ago about certain cabalistic signs and their power to hypnotize one who looked at them too long? I seem to remember only the one called the swastika. Surely there were none on my paper. Again, I noticed the peculiar odor. Myra declares she airs the room every morning. Just a word about my dreams. For the past two nights, I have dreamed about my room. In the dream room, there is something indefinably terrible. I cannot place what it is as yet. I wake up with an uneasy feeling that all is not as it should be in my room. Perhaps I shall have the same dream again. Strange that I have had it now for two consecutive nights. March 10th, Sunday. Again, I have had the same dream. In some odd fashion in my dream, I seem to be in my gloomy old four-poster, the curtains tightly closed, looking up at the ceiling, which is fitfully illuminated by the dying fire. I know definitely that the disturbing influence, whatever it is, is in the ceiling. This morning when I woke, I was exhausted. Perhaps I do not sleep at all, but lie there all night tracing out those maddening curves and spirals by the light of the fire. Terrible thought, that of not knowing whether one is actually dreaming or lying there in that dim shadowy void between true slumber and wakefulness. I must go to bed early tonight. If my book becomes more exciting, I may be able to keep my eyes from those mocking spirals on the ceiling. I hope so. March 11th. A peculiar thing happened last night. As it was Sunday, I retired early to read. After an unsuccessful attempt to rivet my mind on my book, I put it down in disgust. Eagerly, why do I use that word? My eyes turned to the ceiling for the first time. Instead of tracing out the little scrolls and whirls, I saw the thing as a whole. It is strange and a little uncanny, for the vague blurred outline bears a semblance to some monster. If I look directly, I cannot see it. If, however, I look out of the corner of one eye, then it takes shape. I got out of bed to throw a log on the fire. Immediately, the whole fantastic design seemed to fade away and become simply the papered ceiling. Seen from the bed again, the faint irregular outline reappeared after a few moments. Perhaps I should get rid of the four-poster. It is so huge and even sinister with its old red drapes that it may be affecting me as I lie there night after night trying to read my book. Certainly there is a smell as of old cloth. Myra came in last night. Can't you sleep, Paul? She asked. No, dear. I have been reading and have read myself wide awake. Dear girl, she would never understand. She has no imagination. Show her a fragment of cloth from an airplane wing brought down in battle. 
she would see simply a piece of cloth, so many inches wide by so long, possibly a bit soiled. She would get no thrill at the thought, nor would she even think of that piece of cloth miles above the earth, helping to sustain the plane, dodging and dipping around and finally coming down with terrible speed after a well-directed shot. Ah, well, maybe she is better off without an imagination. Perhaps most truly happy people are so because they lack one. March 12th. This thing is becoming fascinating. As I undressed last night, I looked up at the ceiling, ordinary commonplace paper with a design. As soon as I got in bed, though, I looked up and saw the outline of the, shall I say, thing? It has only a vague shape, and I cannot say just what it resembles. I tried the experiment of leaning out one side of the bed. Immediately, the form disappeared. Can it be because of the poor lighting and the fact that in my bed I lie in comparative darkness? Or is it something evil and sinister that is taking place? I have had no more dreams. March 13th. Tonight, I gave up all pretense of reading. The form in the ceiling fascinates me. Its shape is becoming more and more clearly defined. I am anxious, and yet I dread to see what it will resemble if I can, it continues to grow in clearness. Myra suspects something. She questioned me several times as to why I look so worn and haggard after what she thinks is a good night's sleep. If she only knew, she would not wonder, but she must never know, or she will think I am mad. Perhaps I am. I wonder. March 14th. My work at the office suffers because of the strange fascination of the ceiling. I cannot keep my mind off it for a single moment. At night, as soon as I leave Myra on a pretext of reading in bed, as though anyone could read inside those old dark drapes, I slip into my dressing gown and lie there gazing at the ceiling. It is now more than just interest which draws my attention. It is like an awful attraction which compels us against our very will to look at some terrible accident or catastrophe when we would like to shut our eyes. This form is growing clearer. It resembles a gigantic bat. March 15th. I must get rid of my four-poster. It is exerting some evil influence over me, I am sure. Still, I have a morbid desire to see this thing through to the finish. Last night, the details of the shape and the ceiling became more and more pronounced. I imagine I saw its eyes. In addition, some of the scrolls and spirals seemed actually to writhe. I could not have been asleep. The bridge lamp was on. I have a feeling that soon the purpose back of all this will be terribly revealed to me. Somehow I can detach my mind for time and regard myself in this grim little drama from a distance. I see myself inside my darkened bed behind the red drapes, a look of terrible fascination in my eyes, looking, watching, waiting, for what? March 16th. I'm writing this in bed and will make notes of all that happens. As soon as I closed the drapes, I looked up at the ceiling. It was already there, a huge, irregular, murky blot on the paper with the writhing scrolls and spirals. The thing is gaining in clarity and definition. Now, as I lie here and look up, its form is quite distinct. I am watching it. I can see its ribbed wings and its little red eyes. Can I be sane? 
evilly glowing. An odor of things long since consigned to the grave pervades the air. The smell of a charnel house. The fire has almost gone out as the wood ashes smolder and fall to the hearth. The thing in the ceiling seems suddenly to move. Its great bony wings flap slowly and clumsily. It is crawling, crawling along the ceiling until it gets directly over my head. It is only a few feet away. Closer, closer. And Oh God, it's going to jump down. The young man was found dead in bed the following morning. An unforgettable look of horror in his wide staring eyes. Death, the coroner reported, due to heart failure, evidently induced by some violent shock. But engraven in tiny characters, in the ugly carved headboard of the grim old four-poster was found the curious legend. Let him that sleepeth in this bed take heed ere reason leave his head. Well, this is, this is the, uh, the question of the stories, the ending, right? Um, I question the story. I re- reread it for our show just just before you read it to me and to everyone else. Uh, and I, I was thinking about why it ends that way. And that we, when we talked about whether we were going to do this as a show before, uh, that the ending came up. What do you think this this quote means in relation to the story? Because it's very strange. Let him who sleepeth in this bed take heed, ere reason leave his head. It seems like it. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go because I I don't know what to make of it. Well, it seems to me that uh, there are a couple of possibilities. One is that that inscription has been there all along, mm. and that our diarist Paul has never bothered to mention it because he rather wanted to be out of his head or he had no choice but to be out of his head. I can try in my own mind to construct a backstory for Paul that fits uh, all of the few details we have about his life. And uh, I can see that he may really, um, he may have written it himself and he's left it as a warning in the same way that he has written this diary as a warning. Uh, reading it that way, um, the, here's the backstory. Why has he been out of his own room for two months, um, which we find out in the beginning? Because he has been perhaps hospitalized. Mm. Why was he hospitalized? He was a fighter pilot, uh, perhaps. And he was a fighter pilot who uh, engaged in a dogfight. The dogfight led to uh, one plane being shot down by another. The pilot in the shot down plane bled, and we get the red on the piece of cloth that he imagines Myra would not be able to see as anything but a piece of cloth. And it echoes the red drapery of the four-poster bed. 
Mm-hmm. Four posters, by the way. Technically speaking, four posters have a tester that is uh, uh, the horizontal uh, cloth on the top. This isn't technically a four poster because it's open to the ceiling as if mm-hmm. it were open to the sky. And the bat has red eyes and flapping wings. So we can see the bat as sort of a projective image of the uh, of the dogfight. I would suggest that it is possible to read this as Paul having survived the dogfight and killed the other guy mm-hmm. because he talks about the well-directed shot that brings mm-hmm. down the plane. And maybe he was for two months hospitalized because he's this happened during World War One. Mm-hmm. And here we are in 1929 and he's been hospitalized because he can't get over the trauma of what he has been, what he's done and what he has seen. He is, in fact, unmarried. Um, It's his sister who cares for him. And she's done major architectural work. You don't just add a fireplace to a room. So she's tried to make him comfortable. But as soon as he gets back into this place, he becomes uncomfortable. And he writes about this growing insanity. He even says, am I insane? I wonder Mm -hmm. myself. So he could have written that. In which case, I would read those last lines as his attempt to try to keep others from harm because he can't stand that he has been a killer in the air. And all of this is a realistic story told from the viewpoint of someone who is whose psychosis is becoming stronger and stronger as we go through. Mm-hmm. The other way to read it is that that inscription has been there all along, but in such tiny characters that it didn't seem to warrant description because the diarist is really concerned with his own desire to read ghost stories and to uh, and to see things around him as thrillingly and deliciously scary. So he brings a book of ghost stories. The more he gets into it, the more he enjoys it. He looks at the strange patterns in the ceiling. The more he sees it on that paper, the more he gets into it and he scares himself to death. And so um, but he doesn't really because just because you want to do it doesn't mean you can do it. Um, we could think he scared himself to death until we get those last two lines, in which case we know, aha, the bed was haunted. Mm-hmm. That's why he was able to do it. So we have two completely different readings depending upon how you read the last line. It's either a real warning from someone else and it's a haunted, it's a haunted bed, or it's not a warning from someone else. It's the last clinging to to sanity and humanity of someone who feels horrible for what he has done and become. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I read those last two. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think we should definitely make a comparison to a story called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, because this is very similar in, in, uh, in some respects. It's a lot shorter. Um, but that's a story in which a woman is in a bedroom and staring at the wallpaper and seeing uh, things in the wallpaper that are not there. Here, it's the ceiling paper. I didn't know there was such a thing as ceiling paper, but apparently there is. Um, the uh, the whole room, too, is, is fascinating. Uh, I was thinking about that experience, and I'm sure you've had it. Uh, probably everybody's had it, where you're lying in bed. Not asleep, but looking at the ceiling. And 
the ceiling I have right in front of me, it has a sort of an un, un, uh, unshaped dots everywhere, you know, just you can make your own connections. And I love that idea in, in both the yellow wallpaper and in here, that it's got all sorts of whirls and swirls. And he sees the images that are in it, but the images don't come from nowhere. They come from it inside of him. And that projection uh, is just its amazing. When you read this story as him being a World War One fighter pilot, it just expands the story into amazing ways that I don't know if the author even intended. So one of the things like this that comes up is is that he he says I'll just read this section again. Um, March 9th. As soon as I retired last night, my gaze rested on the ceiling. For the first time, I seemed to feel attracted in some vague, uncomfortable way to the queer spirals of paper. Now, the word paper comes up again and again because he's talking about the ceiling paper. But, of course, he's also reading a book. And a book is just a series of, you know, just a series of marks on paper. And yet they conjure up images in our heads just the way we're reading this I'm reading it off of a piece of paper, and I get this sense of of a world inside this paper. So I love that projection onto the ceiling of the book. What he's reading, the book it is a ghost book, right? It's a haunted house book, ghost house he calls it. What was it that I read long ago about certain cabalistic signs and their power to hypnotize one who looked at them too long? I seem to remember only the one called the swastika. Surely there were none on my paper. Uh, now, that idea of these images up on the on the on the wall, uh, up on the ceiling, and obviously being written down on this page, are very interesting mirrors. But I don't know if you know this, Eric. The swastika was not just a Nazi party symbol. It was also used by pilots during World War One as a symbol of good fortune, as in good flight, by both the Germans and the Americans. It's fascinating. I don't know if Fred R. Farrow knew this. I guess it's not really well known, but when we think of the swastika, we always think of Nazis in World War One, World War Two. But just the future echo of this, this is a story that comes out in 1929, and it's looking back at World War I explicitly on the next page, and then it's also projecting forward. And when he does talk about, about the paper, and then he talks about the... Because his sister has chosen the paper. She's chosen everything about this room. The, the giant four-poster bed which he has a love-hate relationship with, um, I, I picture this guy sitting in the center of this bed with the cloth uh, and the drapes and the wood. This is exactly what World War I airplanes are made out of, right? They're, they've got four wings or two sets of wings, right? Just like this bed has four projections out, no ceiling, just like a regular World War I aircraft it has no canopy over the pilot. 
he's back in the in the cockpit and it never says anywhere in the story that he is a pilot but i totally get that sense from this paragraph specifically dear girl she would never understand she has no imagination show her a fragment of cloth from an airplane wing brought down in battle she would see simply a piece of cloth so many inches wide by so long possibly a bit soiled and my question is soiled by what dirt that the airplane crashed into or the blood of the pilot that soaked into it she would get no thrill at the thought nor would she even think that the piece of cloth miles above the earth helping to sustain the plane dodging and dipping around and finally coming down within terrible speed after a well-directed shot that piece of cloth that he's talking about it doesn't actually exist anywhere in the room but that's exactly what pilots did after they shot down their enemy aircraft they'd go to the crash site if they could and cut off a piece of that aircraft to take back as a trophy and the piece they usually would cut off would have either the enemy symbol on it or some sort of symbol to show as a memento that this is a battle one trophy in the same way that the heraldry of the shields and the armor decorates the the uh, room of Edgar Allan Poe's The Oval Portrait. I get the sense that this character has done this. He's cut off a piece of cloth and he, to him it meant something. He doesn't say it's in the room here with me, but it is. Right in the sense that he's brought it all with him, I think that this—that's just so amazing. That I don't know if it's—I don't know if it can be an accident, but I, I've never heard of this guy, Fred R. Farrell. I've never seen this story republished, and I don't think it has been republished, nor his other one. But somehow, I think he's—he's he's done something amazing with it. The other other point I want to p- point to is that it's a bat. It's the monster slowly develops into a bat. And I I knew I loved this story when I saw on the final page, I can see its ribbed wings and its little red eyes. Can I be sane? Evilly glowing. So the reason I think that that's so great is that's exactly how the aircraft look, right? They've got these wooden ribs underneath over which is stretched the cloth of of the aircraft's frame that cloth is the only thing that keeps them aloft and combined with the wood and the stretching over it's a bat i see it as a bat Uh, these are you know vampire bats flying across the sky and he makes it so clear that every time he looks at that paper on the ceiling it's full of whirls and scrolls and spirals and this is what the pilots are doing in that dogfight you you called it out explicitly i think it's just so amazing that he's captured the entire psychology of a of a haunted veteran right who's has a sort of a grotesque desire to to be haunted in purchasing a book called ghost house and he frightens himself to death what a story I, I I really did like that aspect of it very much. Uh, so much is 
made to come up in our own minds by reading this, uh, just as Paul conjures so much in his own mind, just looking at the pattern on the ceiling paper. Uh, I think that his growing psychic possession is uh, also suggestive of the bat being one possible reading of a Rorschach test, Mm. quite a common one at that. Uh, So this fellow may have spent the last two months indeed in a psychiatric institution. What, What makes the story wonderful by your reading is the subtlety with which we managed to get a history for this man compressed into his current insanity. What I think also complicates the story, and for me that adds a kind of richness, is not only the possibility that he didn't write, it didn't engrave those two lines, but really was a haunted bed, mm-hmm. that there are these other powers, um, but other things as well. You know, we get the, the diary and we are given the dates and we go through day after day after day. Um, they None are skipped. But we're told March 10th is a Sunday. That's the only date that is given its day. Mm -hmm. The last time we hear from Paul, the night on which he dies, is the 16th, meaning he doesn't make it to another Sabbath, if you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. And so, again, there's this very subtle possibility that... With so such little non-evidence, we might actually say there's a God in this world and there really is retribution for having having killed, for having shot someone out of the sky. You know, that sort of Icarus like fall Mm -hmm. that is implied in the paragraph you read us that that dear Mary would not have been able to conjure in her own mind that Icarus like fall reminds us mythologically of a different God who exacts retribution and the retribution he exacts, ex- extracts from, from Icarus is his death falling from the sky for having been so proud as to try to reach the sun on his own wings. And one can't help but wonder, given that phrase, well-directed shot, if Paul thought that he was really godlike in being able to climb miles above the earth. Um, But really, it's not his physical body that was destroyed in combat, but his mind that was gnawed away at by these greater forces because he was too proud. He could take pleasure in what he did. Um, So this is not a place of rest, this bed of shadows. It's the shadows of his past that are cast over him, not the shadows of the bridge lamp. Although calling it a bridge lamp, a term that was only just coming into currency in the 1920s, calling it a bridge lamp perhaps suggests that uh, there is something about light that does and doesn't let us see from one world to the other. Mm. And all talk about putting your head out, hanging over the bed, and you don't see it this way. Coming back in, you see it another way, moving the lamp in and out. Um, There are two worlds here. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me there are two worlds either of the spiritual, the haunted, and so on, and ours, or the insane, 
and the mundane. I don't think the story needs to actually resolve the question of the ontology behind it, because the human feeling that so moved you to begin with, it seems to me, comes through in both. I agree. That's why there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. Thank you.